through my journey, I can observe how different I am from, you know, being a person without purpose or without passion with the person I am today. You know, if I would have tech, you know, career directions that work in a corporate or work in business, maybe I would have been better off financially or if I'm not a social entrepreneur, if I'm not leading my own company, maybe I wouldn't have to deal with the COVID trouble or right? somebody else struggles. But then without purpose and passion, would I be as happy? Would I be as energetic? And would I have the friends that I have today? I think especially young people, when they're starting to make big life decisions, it's always very confusing, right? You always have influence from the expectation of the society, from your family, from what you already studies and invest in what your teacher or your school tell you or what you even what yourself think would be, you know, a better path. Everyone work at least eight hours a day. And that's the majority of your day. Like you work more and you interact with your friends and family. You work for eight hours, you eat and rest for the rest 10 hours, just only leave you a few minutes for yourself and friends and family. Uh, so if you don't use that eight hours very well, the majority of your life, you're going to be suffering So for me, it's having that one passion or purpose that makes you feel excited every day to spend that eight hours in a meaningful way. That makes a completely big difference to anyone's life. Hello, everyone. My name is Din Long and welcome to the podcast Lifeline. In this podcast, I will interview people who are having a positive impact in their community and have a strong message that deserves to be shared. We will dive deeper into their journey becoming a change maker, and hopefully you can take away some insights for your own journey. And please do subscribe to Lifeline on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or any platform that you are using. And also you can share this episode with your friends if you like it. It's really what helps me the most. In today's episode, you will be meeting Millie, the co-founder of Innovation Incubator, a social enterprise that aims to unleash the leadership potential of young Vietnamese. Her mission is to foster social innovation and entrepreneurship for sustainable development in grassroots communities. We laid down her journey discovering youth leadership, social innovation and entrepreneurship with ISEC, which is the largest youth-run non-profit with UNDP, with Pandemic, and with Asia-Pacific Youth Exchange. Mili shares with us how each of these experiences successively built one brick of what Innovation Incubator is today. We discuss why it's important for youth to find a purpose that makes them alive, and how finding it for herself changed her vision of life. Hello, Mili. Hello, for the background, uh, Linka that I interviewed in the first episode is your good friend and she's been speaking about you forever, ever since I <laughs> arrived in UNDP. So yeah, so for me, it's a, it's a milestone to be able to speak to you and discover more about your life. So yeah, no, I think so many things to speak about today. I've been stalking you a lot this week. And I think yeah, a, f- a few <laughs> a few things I notice and I really want to speak about is I think the two key words around you will be social innovation and social entrepreneurship, which defines a bit your journey so far. And yeah, no, I also want to speak a lot about ISEG. It feels like it's like your you know first big experience that shaped everything. Yeah, it was a big part of my uh, journey growing up. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, basically, I mean, just uh, pretty much everything. I want to know everything. 
<laughs> You're welcome to ask any questions you would like, you know. I'm an open book. Perfect. Before we jump in, maybe I'll just invite you if you want to introduce yourself, who you are, where you're calling from. Uh, yes. So my name is Millie uh, and I'm from Vietnam. Um, and I'm very honored to be here with Dung Long today to share with everyone who's listening my story and my experience. And um, I hope it will somewhat bring some values uh, to the time that you will spend listening to our conversation. And where are you now? Uh, I'm currently stuck in Bali <laughs> because of COVID. You know, I, I, I live in Jakarta um, and I have my work in Vietnam. But um, because of COVID, I'm unable to go back to Vietnam at the moment. So I'm in Bali in Indonesia. <laughs> I think it's funny because, you know, when I say stuck in Paris, people, is everyone is like, oh, well, no one is stuck in Paris. I think it's the same for Bali, right? St stuck in Bali. You know, from external audience, people are like, oh. That's just a very common reaction. But I would say, you know, once you're far away from home, everywhere else is just a, just a temporary destination, uh, no matter how nice it is. So for yeah. me, it's still, you know, I'm unable to go home at the moment. So it's still a stranded situation for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully you can make it back home soon. Could you introduce a bit what, like, all the activities that you are involved in these days? So I started with Isaac in university in my second year. And actually in the first year of university, I was, um, you know, was a typical teenagers uh, always very occupied with romance and shopping and uh, <laughs> all the possibility when you finally have freedom from your parents uh, when you turn 18. Um, but after the first year of university, I kind of, um, you know, I was looking for something else and uh, I found Isaac, which was a social organization who um, focused on developing leadership in young people. And I was involved in the organization for three and a half years with my last role as a vice uh, president for Isaac in Vietnam. And after that, I um, moved to Thailand to work with UNDP in Asia Pacific, um, which also in a team who are uh, dedicating to working in youth leadership and innovation in the region. And after that, I moved to KL in Malaysia. Uh, to work for a social innovation consultancy. Um, they also do corporate innovation as a consultant. Um, and after a year in KL, I moved back to Vietnam to start my own business, to set up my own social enterprise. And that's until last year, 2019. <laughs> I'm not sure if that was a good introduction. <laughs> no, 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 it's good. I think it's a good teaser. So welcome back to all of that, obviously. Um, I think you also founded the social enterprise in, in Bangkok, right? Yes. Uh, yes, I forgot to mention that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, no, well, no worries. We'll come back to all of that. Uh, but before I wanted to ask you, the, so your real, I mean, your real, your, Viet, I mean, uh, real, I don't know, but your passport name is Mei Ling. I just wanted to know, does it mean something? Yeah, so my sister named me uh, that after a Chinese a woman general. Uh, I'm not sure if you heard the story of the Tong family, the three Tong sister. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, so there's a Chinese uh, story, not exactly story, they all actual historic figures. And there's a family of three sisters, Tong Ailing, Tong Kanglin, and Tong Midlin. 
and the story was very popular in Vietnam in uh, in the 90s and there's a movie series about them in Vietnam uh, so my sister named me after the youngest sister who, who's Tong Mei so that's my name <laughs> um, so she's a Chinese political figure who was the first lady of the Republic of China and the wife of the president Chiang Kai-shek oh, that's okay. the information in, in English yeah, but she was the uh, most intelligent of the three sisters, and she was the most rebellious. And she married to the first president of China. <laughs> so is there a wave of people with the name of the three sisters from the 90s? I think there's definitely a lot of people named Lin. <laughs> uh, but Meilin is, uh, I haven't um, seen a lot. There, there's a very popular singer in Vietnam with the same name, Meilin. But there's a lot of people named Lin. For, for girls' names uh, in the 90s. I remember there was one class in my elementary school where we would have five learners in the same classroom. <laughs> so I would say it's popular. And uh, so another, another question on your name. Since when did you name yourself Millie? Mm, I would say since I started uh, university because I went to uh, an international university. Well, my professor and all my coursework is done in English. Um, and I like my name, but it's just to foreigners. They usually pronounce this in a, as a Chinese name, like Mei Ling, instead of Mei Lin. You know, it's Dr. Difference, but it's, um, it, it's, I, I felt like they was calling another person instead of my name. So I decided to give like a simplified version that anyone can easily pronounce. Um, and I also like, you know, give myself a nickname. <laughs> You know, teenage years. <laughs> How long did it take until you really owned Millie? Um, hmm. I I would say. Hmm, I would say since I started working in international environment, like first of all was in Isaac, where I started to work with you know foreign friends. Um, and in an environment where we use English for all the communication where, you know, there's other nationalities in the same groups. Um, and that's the only name that everyone else have known me. Uh, yeah, and I just, uh, yeah, I just only introduced that name to everyone else that I know. Okay, okay. Uh, if yeah. I, my family, everyone else know me as Millie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, so you said in your introduction that you were, so I just quote you, this typical teenager all about shopping and romance until like 18, 19, I guess. Could you, could, so could you share the, just a bit how was your life until 18, 19? And then what made you, because you said then you, you were looking for something else, but what made you want to look for something else? Mm. Yeah, so I would say, um, should I start from when I was small? <laughs> How do you yeah, tell? Yeah, we have time <laughs> as you want. <laughs> okay, uh, so I grew up in um, a business family. So my my mom especially have quite a unique background. So she's uh, she's had her ranking in the military. So she's a military person, but she's also a businesswoman um, because. In Vietnam, the military, after the reform, after 86, they only opened the economy then. Um, and back then, the military uh, has been like um, 
um, what's what's the word like trailblazing? Um, yeah, so the military has been the pioneers in opening new businesses and restarting the economy. So my mom got to run a business within the military. So she has both uh, a business of her own, but also the ranking in the military. Um, but up until I was 10, our family was quite poor uh, because they actually went bankrupt once during the process. Um, so I remember I grew up in a military kind of dormitory house with a lot of other families uh, sharing the same yard uh, and just playing with that. You know, I, I remember we were very, very poor back then. But then after um, when I was 10, that's around the year 2000, then our business picked up. And uh, I would say I, I had quite a privileged childhood when, you know, I have good ed- educations and um, everything was well provided. Um, but I was also a very rebellious uh, teenagers growing up. I would say because, uh, you know, we transitioned from this period of being poor, but a very close-knit family uh, with my parents and my sister. Uh, and now they both becoming between extremely um, busy and uh, distant from us, um, which was when my sister turned 18 and when I was, you know, entering my uh, early teenage years. Then I became very rebellious <laughs> and I, I was kind of against everything that was happening around me. Um, so that happened until um, I had quite a difficult high school years as well, um, where I also fell into, you know, like very deep depressions and feeling like disconnected from everyone from my family. And that lasted until I leave for university when I was 18. Yeah, and after that, I also went to uh, an international university, which, you know, also com- comprises of students who also came from very successful family background. Um, and most of them have, you know, family business or um, whose parents are very successful people. Um, so I, I I was very privileged to be in that environment. Um, but I also saw very distinct size of the, um, of the group of students. Um, one is that because they're so privileged, they don't need to um, they don't need to try very hard to have things that everyone else striving so hard for. You know, like to be able to have a good job or to have you know money to spend um, because they kind of have a safety net from family. Uh, even if they don't succeed, if they don't study very well, probably they can still work in their family business or you know they have connections who can help them. Um, in the real world, so that one, so that's one group of the of the students, and I was one of them. Like I was really enjoying, you know, being so provide well provided for, and enjoying, you know, the um, freedom of being away from family, but uh, close to many other cool friends. That um, most of what we were doing was um, shopping, and uh, you know, like racing motorbikes <laughs> and. <laughs> You know, very, uh, um, very material things like that, um, or traveling together, and I really enjoyed that period. But I also saw another group of students who, because they felt that they were so privileged, they also really tried to give back to other people, try to use the resources that they have to do something meaningful. And they actually work really hard, like they study really hard, and they work really hard trying to achieve something and get somewhere. Um, so in my second year of university, like intrigued by you know, this opposite side that I've seen. Um, and then I enter myself to 
um, a club back then at school, uh, which was Isaac. Yeah. So I have two, two, two questions in one. So the first one is, would you say you had this awareness of this, I mean, the, the, the RMIT students, they are more privileged than others. They have to struggle less because you said you grew up in a, the first 10 years in a poor situation. And second question is, like, so this group of students who you said they work hard because they want to give back and want to have an impact, were they your friends or just people you, you saw around and you were curious about what they were doing? And it's really like they inspired you to look into ISAC? I, I would say that... Um Yeah, I would say I didn't know anyone from Isaac back then. Uh, it's just we have this club day when all the clubs get to, you know, display and all their members come out and try to welcome everyone to join their own clubs. And I don't remember exactly the details, but back then it was the only club that I was considering registering. Uh, and it turns out to be a very difficult process. Like you, you have to apply and then you have to go a group uh, teamwork session where you work in team for a challenge and there's a board of, you know, other students who observe you and judge you and then have a final interview one-on-one. Um, so actually when I registered, I didn't really expect anything much. I thought it was another club at school. Um, but then I was very intrigued by you know, the formality and it seems like something challenging and exciting. I, I would say the first few friends that I met in Isaac, they still my friends now, like they're one of the few friends that I have the longest connection with. Um, so I would say it wasn't anything particular. It was, you know, I was very new at the school. Uh, I wanted to join a club and they ended up being my very good friends and long-term friends and Um, as it was kind of an in- enabling environment of that. It's, it's, it's funny because I have a, a think similar story, actually. I, I also went to a fancy business school in Paris and there was this student club day <laughs> also and I joined, it's not ISEC, but it's called, um, I mean, it's like similar, you know, social entrepreneurship and social innovation student club. And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. Uh, and it's how I discovered all of that. And I think it shaped everything. But anyway, back to you. Could you maybe remind what is ISEC? And and yeah, what did you do? Because you stayed two, two, two three years in this student club. So what were you responsible for? Was it easy, challenging? Yeah, if you could share that experience. Yes. Um, so ISEC is... Uh The, currently is still the world's lar- largest uh, youth-led organization. Uh, and their vision is to um, to work towards peace and fulfillment of humankind's potential. Um, so the organization is set up after World War II, um, where a group of young students in Europe realized that, you know, because of the differences of uh, worldviews and the lack of understanding between each other, there was such devastating consequences such as the World War II. 
Um, so this group of students dedicated their time and work to have an organization to exchange students around the world. So if, they, if you are a young, a young person, you can um, go to another country to volunteer or work and be immersed in that new culture, new environment uh, with other young people who also support you in your growth journey. Um, and that's how they advocate peace and uh, fulfillment of humankind's potential. So a lot of the work in the organization is focused on facilitating a change of students and young people between different countries. Uh, and all these change programs are designed in a way that help the person develop their leadership skill or help them ex- expose their potentials in, in their volunteering or professional work. Um, so I joined Isaac as a member and Isaac have a democratic system where to in order to progress in the organization, um, every leadership position have to be over open election. Um, so open voting, like everyone, if you want to be president of a chapter, if you want to move on to a national level, um, you have to be voted for by all the members that have the power to vote. Um, so I joined as a member for around six months, um, and then I apply for the vice uh, president position in my local chapter, which was in my university. Um, and I worked for that position for one year um, as a volunteer because we were studying at the time and um, there was no, you know, it's, it's, it's still a local uh, student organization. Um, and then after one year of being vice president in my local chapter, um, I applied to be national vice president. Uh, to facilitate an uh, outgoing exchange, um, internship exchange program. So that means to facilitate a program where we send Vietnamese students to go abroad as interns. Um, yeah, and I, I got elected for that role and I worked for that role for another, for another year. Yeah. Is that a good enough explanation? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you said that you're sex objective is to facilitate change for all the um, participants of programs. I'm wondering on the other way around, like how did you change through your ISEC experience? Um, hmm. That's a big question. I need to reflect on that a little bit. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think I think how Isaac changed me was uh, once. Um, the first thing is uh, the first time I went abroad was through Isaac. So when I, I went abroad when I was nineteen to the Philippines for an Isaac conference, um, and that's actually why I met my uh, good friend, one of my best friend, who is Savvy. He was also in Isaac at the time, um, and we're still good friend until today. And he's been kind of one of my most important mentors and brothers <laughs> uh, in life. Um, so I and and also my president at the time, my my teammate um, since university. They they still my friends to this day. They're the one who you know follow me with every step of you know my new job or when I get engaged or when I have a baby. They're the one that be there for every life milestone that I have. Um, so I would say Isaac provided a very important network for my life, like um, network of good friends. Um, the second is through Isaac, I get to 
um, see the world, like exposed to, I got an opportunity to be exposed to many different type of young people um, where, you know, of course, with that come along with um, a lot of new perspective about um, new perspective, new opinion, new cultures uh, about all the issues that we were able to discuss as an organization. Um, um, yeah, and also through that, I have a chance to work with teams who are uh, professionals, who are very outstanding in their fields, um, who are, you know, who I still learn a lot until this, this day after Isaac. I, I watch their work and I watch their career and I watch how they make decisions in life and how they grow themselves and they are all role models in life. Um, that provide me kind of a benchmark of how I should be in the world as well. Yeah. So I would say one is my lifelong connections with friends. One is the second is the opportunities that I got to have. Um, and third is to learn from all the teams and the people that I worked with uh, that shaped my uh, capabilities. Is it during ISX that you uh, realized, okay, I want to stay in the your social entrepreneurship and innovation world, or is it not yet? Um, yes, I would definitely say Isaac inspired me to be in the social development sector at least, uh, because actually during the Isaac time, I also try out a lot of different things. I also try out opening my own online shop um, with my sister. Um, my sister back then also have a company uh, working in telecommunications, so I also try to help her with some of the work with the company. Um, my parents are business people. So as ever since, you know, high school, they engaged me in business activities. So I wasn't uh, just doing Isaac work, um, but the, the work, the type of work that I feel most rewarded and fulfilling was with Isaac where we do, you know, we were, we were volunteering at the time, but I felt very um, connected with the cause. I felt there was a purpose. Um, I felt that this was a very you know, mm, mm, how to say, um, a very, um, I'm trying to find a word for the community. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what to describe it, but it's very different from the business world or, you know, from the corporate world. The, the type of people and the type of connections you get to have is distinctly different. Uh, and I think I was very lucky to be able to see this when I was very young so that I, I get a very clear directions of what I want to do when I enter the workforce. Mm. Although, I, although I was a big disappointment to my parents <laughs> who really expected me to, you know, become a businesswoman and become very rich and successful and powerful. <laughs> <laughs> so I think in their eyes, you know, like they, they, their image of success is to um, earn a lot of money, have a lot of status. Um, um, yeah, but uh, I decided to not follow that exact path. And um, we, we went through a quite a difficult time as well with my parents um, trying to get their approval and understanding of uh, what I choose to do later on. <laughs> And now do they accept what you are doing? 
Well, I think it was a very long and difficult process. I think, uh, as I mentioned, I was a very rebellious person as well. So I don't think I, I, I took the best uh, way to persuade them. But actually, when I after graduation, when I say I wanted to move to Bangkok to work in the social sector, my mom actually say that she would uh, disown me. <laughs> they say, they say uh, she say she wouldn't recognize me as a daughter anymore because I'm going against her decision. Um, but yeah, after many months of crying and fighting, and I still decide to go. And I, I think she was very heartbroken at the time, but she decided to support me regardless. Um, and we ha- she we have like it's is a very funny <laughs> very asian inside but every household kind of uh save goal um i don't know if you're familiar with it but instead of like you know saving cash in a bank account everybody save goals um and ever since small my my mom been teaching me to save money in like the biggie bank and she's been using she's been using all my saving money to buy gold, so that you know it's like a safety uh, safety pot for me. <laughs> and uh, even though she was really against my decision to move, but when I moved, she she saw all the gold that she's been saving for me. So that was this other fun that I had to move to Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> How did you take this decision to? Because I guess it's very difficult. Um, I don't know. How do you take this kind of decision? Um, I think um, I think even though as contradictory as it may sound, um, my my mom was really against me to go, you know, to choose this path. But she was the one who always raised me to be very strong and independent and very decisive because that's who she is like she's a very successful businesswoman and she's always been very tough and she's been successful in the military war ruled by men um so i always been looking up to her as a role model to you know always be strong and independent <laughs> and uh, just unfortunately when i when i um needed to be strong and independent and defending my own decision it was um it wasn't the one that she would be favor of um and she was quite upset because of that but <laughs> um but i think um yeah i think she always uh, made me that way <laughs> and so it was inevitable that i fought with everything that i could to to have my own way <laughs> does it make sense <laughs> yeah 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 no i think it's uh no because i'm wondering uh Like you know what you want, but there's so many external forces that tell you not to go. Yeah, I think um, I think if if there were reason, I think at the time, what I was saying was um, I saw my uh, brother-in-law, um, who was also he was young in his career. He was he was in his early thirties, um, and he was also in international mission to abroad into Africa. And for me, that was also an unusual choice for a lot of people, right? Like um, mm. to, to live life comfortably at home with wife and kids to to walk away from home far away in Africa. Um, but but he was considered successful. She, he was considered, you know, um, you know, uh, a figure in his in 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 our family as well as in the company. Um, But when I choose to make a very similar decisions to um, 
you know, to go abroad and work and um, work towards my career, um, the reaction I faced was, you know, you should get married. Now that you graduated, you should get married. Um, you should stick with your boyfriend, even if you're not happy. Um, mm. You should get a, you know, not, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be too successful as a woman. Otherwise, you won't be able to get a husband. Or you should get uh, a job that is comfortable, maybe less pay, but more comfortable near near to home, so that you can take care of your family. And and you know, in my mind, it was the difference was so clear that I really couldn't understand it. I was like, <laughs> I was quite shocked actually to to face you know the the reaction from my family that I shouldn't go, that they would disown me. Uh, because to me, it was the same decision as my brother-in-law back then. Um, but it was regarded as a completely different thing. And I think that's also why I fought extra hard as well, because <laughs> I, I saw this as, you know, unfair and unreasonable at the time. Yeah. Did you expect that it would happen during your university days? Or it just came uh, out? I, I didn't at all. Um Yeah, I, I, I would say that it came out as quite a surprise. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's how it went down. <laughs> okay, so you moved to Bangkok right after you, you ended university? Yeah. So how did that work? I mean, so, <laughs> wait. Uh, so, okay, so you, you finished university, then it's also the end of ISEC. You found a job at UNDP where I'm currently, uh, so you're my ancestor. So yeah, how long did you stay there? What did you do? Well, I actually moved before I get the contract to UNDP. Um, I actually moved okay. because, um, yeah, I, I still remember like the month before I was moving, um, I was watching on TV the news of like a UN meeting. And I just say to my mom, like, mom, I want to work for the UN. And then she say, who would hire you? <laughs> you know, like very, very jokingly way, but she really doesn't think, you know, that those are options for me. She was very fixed for me to be a businesswoman. Um, and so I, I, didn't, I didn't think the opportunity would come um, uh, so fast. Um, but uh, my friends uh, who was, who, who's the co-founder, um, Uh, with me for the social enterprise in Thailand was also in Isaac. Um, and also one of my leaders in Isaac was also now in, in Bangkok working for a UN program. Um, and so they were saying, you know, we really need people. Um, I just graduated and I, you know, I had a post on Facebook saying I was unemployed and now I'm ready for a new job. Um, and uh, they kind of say, hey, we have this thing for you, but Uh, you know, we just, uh, you can come if you want to do this, but we might not have any money to pay you any salary because it was just a concept at the time, it was just a project. Um, and I was really desperate to find something that really aligned with my values. Like I, I tried to apply for jobs in corporate um, as my mom wishes, but uh, it didn't, I really didn't feel like I would stay for any of that opportunities. Um So as uh, I mentioned before, I saw all my gold that I saved since I was small and I have a small amount of money. Um, and I left to Bangkok with the expectation that at least for six months, I, won't gonna be, I, I was not going to be paid. Um, 
because I didn't have a contract at the time. I just have a project that I was willing to come to help uh, as a volunteer. Um, but luckily, after after I arrived in Thailand, after two months uh, helping out a project and meeting with people in the UN, and they saw me as you know somewhat valuable, and <laughs> they gave me a contract. <laughs> so it was kind of a wild decision. Uh, it wasn't really a move for the job decision. It was more like okay, I'm just going to be there and see how it goes. <laughs> so there were two things in Bangkok. One was you were supporting one idea slash project of UNDP from people that you met in ISEC. And the second thing you said, you co-founded the social enterprise already? That was a year after, yeah. That was after a year when I was in Bangkok. Okay. Okay, okay. So, yeah, so to everyone listening, if you are looking for a job, post on Facebook and post on LinkedIn. Uh, you never know where it's going to bring you. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so you moved with no visibility, without support of your family. You moved to Bangkok, so it's uh, <laughs> quite impressive. And, you know, like the first day that I moved there, the next day was the was the pathway of King Ramanai. Um Oh. And, and so I saw a very different Thailand as well. It was a huge culture shock um, because, um, you know, when I was supposed to be finding accommodation to be, you know, be interacting with my new workplace, um, Thailand just completely shut down um, and people was in grieving. People were, you know, everyone was in plaque. Uh, people were in deep sorry for the loss of the king and For me, who was just, you know, completely strange to the culture. I never been to Thailand before. Um, and that's all I was seeing. But also at the same time, it is it showed me a very different side of Thailand that I I would say if I was there as a tourist, I would never have uh, connected with the country so much, um, being in such an important moment of the country as well. And that also made me work extra hard to to do whatever I can in Thailand. Because you wanted to connect more with the country or because you wanted to stay? I think because I was shown a very different side of the country, like not just, you know, what I see on the news. I think back in the day when I was moving there, like all I know from the news from Thailand was they have bombing here and there in Bangkok. Uh, they have very unstable political situation You know, they have very strong tourism, but also like the other side of tourism with sex tourism and um, other issues that you normally see in the news, right? Um, but but when I was there, I was seeing, you know, people are really um, connected uh, with a figure, with a leader figure. Um, they have a very um, different, but also very impressive and intriguing culture like it's is very it's somewhat identical it's somewhat very familiar with our culture in Vietnam but also very distinctively um, uh, embedded with Buddhism teachings and the way people would interact with me or with each other or um, you know I, I think it was I, I arrived in a very interesting time and I saw a very different interesting side uh, of the culture and the people and that's just uh, it was very intriguing and make me connect with the country even more. Yeah. How long did you stay in, in Thailand? Uh, I stayed for almost two and a half years. Okay. Did you always keep that connection throughout the two and a half years? 
Yeah, I would say because of my work then, uh, I got to do a lot of community development work, not only in Bangkok, but I got to travel to many different provinces in Thailand and work with many small villages and many local peoples from different regions, different backgrounds, different ethnic cities as well. Um, so I would say I was very privileged to see a side of Thailand that not a lot of expat has the chance to experience. And yeah, I've, I fell in love with, um, like through my work, I got even more connected with the country. What kind of work were you doing? Yeah, so I work for UNDP Asia Pacific on the Youth Leadership Innovation Project. But also at the same time, I work for the Thailand Country Office uh, for the Thailand Social Innovation Platform. And we run um, also programs to, um, we run youth innovation competitions, we run conferences, workshops, uh, exchange program uh, for young people to collaborate with communities in Thailand or Thai people within communities in Thailand to um, come up with innovative solutions that's also social issues in Thailand. Um, and because we want to focus on solving social issues in Thailand, we work with many different local communities that are experiencing those, um, those, um, those social challenges. Um, so we get to go to villages where, um, you know, maybe up in the north where they don't have any um, identifications. Um, maybe a fun fact that I can share as well, that um, there's many people in Thailand who doesn't have um, uh, a nationality, even though they've been living in Thailand for many, many years, they don't have an, they're not recognized as a Thai nationality. So they have a card saying that they're aliens. Um, so they have a pink card that actually say they are aliens because they, um, they don't have a nationality. Mm-hmm. So we work with this community to, you know, understand the difficulty. Like if you're an alien, um, you can't own land or anything. You don't have a legitimate um, education certificate. Um, you can't really leave the area to find opportunities. So there's a lot of barriers around these communities. Um, so what we try to do is to see uh, what are the solutions we can offer to them, what kind of program we can design so that they can get access to um, opportunities or uh, educations or bring their ideas out to the world or bring resources into their communities. Yeah, so that was one of the examples. How did you work with the communities? Like, would UNDP already work with these communities and then you you arrive and you discuss with everyone or... How does that work to identify a community and then start working with them? So during my time, we work with many new communities that we never been there before. Um, and a lot of them go through, you know, network of connections. Uh, we also have Thai team members and my boss was also Thai. Um, and, you know, Thailand office also have a lot of connections with, um, we start with communities nearby Bangkok. Um, and then some of the community reference us to other communities. Um, and also, you know, in Thailand, they have each village have kind of a kind of a small village leader. Um, and they will be the one who connect us to all the other village or community that, you know, they, they feel like we should be visiting. <laughs> um, and, and the way we try to help them was, um, either we'll help bring in resources. For example, we design program where we'll bring in uh, young people with capabilities uh, to design ideas and projects. 
um, or we bring some of these ideas out into our events and conferences so that our network maybe will be able to support them. And also, we also run um, uh, programs and competitions or trainings in Bangkok where we also invite leaders of this community to come uh, to receive training or we invite young people from this community to come to pitch their ideas, to compete, to learn together, and then we'll provide them with some support. Do you remember one idea that you loved from back then? Yes, there are many. <laughs> um, but I would say this one that I was most impressed with was from this community, from a small school in the north of Thailand. Um, I actually forgot the exact name of the village, but... Um, I'm really sure, sorry about this, but it's been a few years ago. Um, But um, we visit this school who allow the students of these uh, alien communities to uh, to study with them. Um, and there's this one group of students who's in 10th grade, so they are about 16. And they've been working together for two to three months to develop this small prototype of, um, of a natural disaster alert system. So the idea was very clever in the way that In, in the mountain area, there's a lot of landslide or flood that come unannounced or come when, you know, so sudden that the, um, and the, and the, and the siren that announced the disaster is so far away that the people in the remote area maybe wouldn't be aware of that. Um, so this group of students, um, designed like prototype of device that use recycled, um, mobile phone and they put one mobile phone on a tower pole um, and this pole can be like meters or short or tall depend on where you would put it um, nearby your house um, but in the pole there will be a sensor that uh, if there's if the water level if the flood reach a certain um, level of the pole it will call the it will signal the mobile phone at the top to call the person's phone number So it's kind of like an instant um, uh, alert system that even if you live far away from town, if you, if you can't hear the siren, you have instant alert that there's a flood coming um, or if there's a fire or earthquake coming. So the sensor can adapt to that. And they can put this um, pole a few meters away from their house or, you know, from the directions that usually the disaster would come in. And they would instantly get a call to their phone number uh, where a disaster is coming. And the amazing thing about this idea is that they can build it with only 200 baht. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's a really cheap, uh, low-cost idea. And they use recycled material and it's created within three months by a team of 16 years old. Um, and you can't wow. imagine like if they can roll it out, it can save lives, you know, like literally lives uh, for people in these areas. So that was something that was really powerful to me. Like when they demonstrated the prototype and when we hear the microphone just rang from the demonstration, we literally had like, you know, goosebumps. <laughs> so, yeah, so 200 baht is around uh, six euros so eight dollars for everyone's information so very cheap 
Let's try to find the name after the interview so I can include it in the notes. So I'm wondering, like, after you work in all these grassroots communities, no, okay, more like, when did you start thinking about going back to Vietnam and doing things in Vietnam? So after Bangkok, I... Um, so because I do a lot of community engagement work, I also realized after two and a half years of working is that as, you know, because I didn't study Thai because I couldn't speak Thai very well. Um, I, I, there's, there's a certain, um, how to say, um, there's a limit to what I can actually uh, involve with the community development work. Uh, a lot of this work is, you know, building relationship, uh, talking with the grass group people, um, managing like very little details of the project, um, which are the things that, you know, my teammates was doing very well. And we all enjoy this work a lot. But, you know, I also found that as as a foreigner who doesn't speak the language, uh, I face a certain barrier that prevent me to go further into the details of this kind of work. Um, and also, I, I at a time, I also want to see, uh, I also realized that the ecosystem in Thailand have very unique conditions um, that enable this social innovation, these uh, ideas to bloom. And there's, they have a very unique set of conditions of how the, of that build the ecosystem this way. Um, so I was curious if there's any other ecosystem out there in other country, uh, how how it's like, like without these unique conditions, would it be the same? Um, and especially I was uh, curious to see what I could bring back to Vietnam and what I couldn't. So I wanted to see, to work in another country before I move back to Vietnam. Yeah, and that's when I moved to KL, to Malaysia. So yeah, what, what were you doing in, in Malaysia? Yeah, so in Malaysia, I work for Tanamic, uh, which is a consultancy focused on innovation, uh, and they do both corporate and corporate innovation and social innovation. Um, so that was the new area that I get to learn. Like before, I was only working in social innovation, uh, but in this consultancy, I also learn how it works working with corporate clients. Um, I, and I can tell you, it's very very different. Like, is the uh, methodology different or is just the... Uh, because before you were working with young people in grassroots community, now you're working with big corporations in the capital city, in big towers. So put it this way, uh, before when I was with UNDP, we were kind of working as client perspective um, because as UN, you can you know, you can hire other consultancy to do very specialized piece of work. Um, but when you work in a consultancy, you kind of work as the provider for your clients. So you work as your client wishes and work as a client brief um, and you serve the client's project um, objectives. Um, so that was the two side uh, of the switch that I would switch from working from, you know, a client perspective to a provider perspective. Um um, but that's but but that's just the change in the role, right? But also, I changed to work in provider perspective, but also not just social innovation anymore, but also to corporate clients. Um, and 
I would say once you specialize in anything, like as in this consultancy, we specialize in providing trainings and content for you know design thinking and innovation processes. Um, it's it's much more. It's less about organizing and you know mobilizing resources. Uh, you don't have to care about um, you know building relationships with well maybe not. Um, let me let me formalize this so that I don't you know offend my own bosses. <laughs> um, I would say like when you specialize in a certain area, like you don't like compared to before, you have to do everything from beginning to the end, organizing, uh, reporting, um, looking at stakeholder relationship management, um, and then you leave the specialized piece for the consultancy to do it. But when you only focus on a small piece, every single details have to nail down to, you know, even... Um, I don't know. Have you have you worked in consultancy before? I I don't think so. I think I've always been on the other side. Somehow I'm struggling to describe this. I guess simply put, it's more process oriented, and you don't really have to care about the before and after uh, of the piece of work that you do. Right. Uh, usually, with like let's say for a UN project, you follow the whole project for a long period of time. Uh, let's say six months or a year, um, but with short-term contract or, um, you know, client-specific brief, um, do you very focus on that single delivery or, you know, just very specialized piece of work? Um, and you try to bring as much uh, specialties and knowledge as possible. Um, but then the, the end output would be, you know, the happy, like the satisfaction of the client or, mm, the effectiveness of the trainings or things that you able to deliver, but not necessarily, you know, the success of the whole projects as a whole. Does it make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what fulfills you the most? I, I would say that although I was curious with doing corporate innovation, I wasn't particularly happy with having corporate being more and more powerful and rich, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I definitely see the values of, you know, um, ha- being a specialized arm of a certain field and just focus on being advancing and leading in that field. Uh, but at the same time, if all that specialties is used to, um, you know, in, enriching and empowering uh, corporate or big, money clients uh for me that was the bit that um i wasn't aligned with the most um and i I really do miss working with grass group people and being there and actually know that what we this this one day it doesn't only end in this one day it's actually follow up with them for a long period of time and see how things progress um so that was definitely the past that i didn't get to see when i was in the consultancy i'm curious before we speak about you returning back to Vietnam, like with ISEC, with UNDP, with pandemic, you were always in the innovation, entrepreneurship, and leadership world. What are your learnings from the methodology used? Like, you know, with ISEC, UNDP, pandemic, did you use the same methodologies or did you see big differences between the different 
organizations. You mean with the community work or with you know different innovation um, methodology? I guess the end goal is always to I don't know develop the leadership potential of people, foster innovation, foster and new business ideas. Is it done the same way in all these organizations? Mm, I would say very different. I would say the difference is, for example, in Isaac, the most important priority was the people. They focus on the leadership capacity and the fulfillment of potential in the people that they engage with. So I would say an example is even if the project failed, but if the people involved feel like they have grown and learned and they become a better person, it's still considered a success. Mm. And with the UN projects, I would say with the priority, at least when I was there, with the priority to help the community and to come up with, you know, usable solutions and make sure to see that into implementations, um, the focus is much more into, you know, the practicality of the ideas, um, the impact of the project, um, how we would, you know, work with the people and the community in the long term so that we ensure that we see some changes happening. Um, and with uh, Tanamic, it's really uh, it's it's really focused on building up the specialty, the capacity of the team, so that we ensure that we bring the best of knowledge of our consultancy. Um, and it doesn't have to be, you know, we 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 don't follow up with the client's project from beginning to the end, so mm-hmm. we don't ensure their success or we don't ensure the continuity of the project, but we focus on you know, building our capacity so that we, we bring the best possible result for, for the delivery that our clients expect. Um, so I would say, you know, it's, it's all innovation work, um, but depend on what's most important to the organizations, um, the outcome is different. And of course, you know, there, there's a million different ways to, to do this work, but uh, I would say the focus on each of the organization is very different. And from all of that, from everything that you learn like what what do you want to bring back to vietnam i think for me personally i came back to vietnam because i wanted to work more with communities in vietnam so i actually really want to i, I felt like i have been away for so long and i've learned so much in other countries but um, at the same time i don't feel like i, I know that much about my own country um, so i set up a team with the objective that you know we would reach Uh, further regions that is not, you know, we rich people and communities that are not in the big cities, um, less advantage, or they have, you know, very unique challenge that only happening in Vietnam. Um, and we hope would bring, you know, solutions from from all, from our learnings that we will bring solutions that will work in Vietnam. Um, yeah, but unfortunately, you know, <laughs> since I set up a team, I haven't, I wasn't able to be in Vietnam so much. Um, so my team does most of the work that I would love to do. <laughs> But I'm also very happy that they get a chance to do that. Yeah, what, what's the name of your social enterprise? How did you set it up when with people you know, with random people? So I started a team in 2019, in early 2019. And we registered as a social enterprise a couple of months after. And the company is called Innovation Incubator. Um, you can find us on Facebook if you add, you know, Innovation Incubator in Vietnam or Social Innovation in Vietnam. 
um, because I think there's also a random innovation incubator somewhere yeah. else in the world. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, we set up in early 2019, so it's actually a very young entity. Is you know more than a year and a half by now. I think we never said the name of Asia Pacific Youth Exchange, but I think it's it was always something embedded within UNDP in Thailand, and it's also one of the activities of Innovation Incubator, right? Yes. So with um, with the team that I, um, um, how do you say? So I was in the founding team of APOA in Thailand. Um, it's actually a franchise model that is now happening in the Philippines, Thailand, Vietnam, Korea, uh, coming to in India next year as well. Um, and also we have a team in Taiwan. Um, so it's a franchise model and there's a team in each country who run the program in that country. Um, and so when I was in Thailand, I also ran this program for two and a half years. And I wanted to bring this model to Vietnam um, to work with Vietnamese community. Uh, with this program so it's, it's actually the the reason why we founded the company to run this program uh, first and foremost um, but after also after a while running this program the team also have the capacity to run some other program um, and the company just kind of uh, grow that way to you know we grow our, grow our other programs and products as well but it's still aligned with the you know community development through trainings and empowerment um, objective which is also written in our um, business registrations as well <laughs> that's that's what we're allowed to do in Vietnam <laughs> so okay I think yeah I find it very interesting so you were part of the founding team in APYE Thailand so that's how you got involved in APYE community and then yeah you started it in Vietnam two years ago but To start it, you established an organization to run this. And then you realize with all your team, you can do more than just the APYE. So you started different activities. Interesting. How did you set up the team for APYE Vietnam? Because you were still in, I think, in Malaysia, right? Yeah. So I st started setting up the team when during my transition period from Thailand to KL. So I took a two months break at the early of 2019. And um, during this break and transitions to move country and change job, and I used that break to, you know, set up something in Vietnam. <laughs> um, I definitely took too much, <laughs> much more than I could handle back then. But um, I was also on, you know, a world travel tour <laughs> during my break. So I actually was interviewing, recruiting my team while I was traveling all around you know, Nepal and Tibet and Italy and, yeah, and then came home for Lunar New Year holiday. So I did the whole setup during my break time. Uh, and when I leave to my job to KL, uh, I left most of the work for my team to manage because my objective at the beginning was not like the, the entity in the program wasn't wasn't for me to be involved or to learn anymore because I've been doing it for two, two or three years. I wanted to give this opportunity for my team in Vietnam uh, for them to learn and grow with the program and like do their best for it. Um, and that's what they did for the first year. Um, and when I 
and when I was kind of, um, you know, determined that the work in care wasn't for me anymore, I got what I wanted. Uh, I learned about an ecosystem. I learned a lot more about innovation um, expertise. Um, and then I wanted to move back to Vietnam to work more closely with the team and have it grow even further. Um, but then unfortunately, you know, COVID year happened and uh, we're in a bit of the limbo at the moment. <laughs> What is your dream with Innovation Incubator? How do you see it, I don't know, in the future, like in the perfect condition? How do you see its impact? How do you see its activities? Did you ever think about it? Um, I thought about it. Let me formulate my thoughts a little bit better. Um, I guess... Um, I guess I don't have a fixed vision in my head what the, you know, ideal successful image would be. But like what I would really love to do with it is, you know, to is, is a space for all of us, for me and my team to be able to test and execute all the ideas that we have. You know, it's kind of like a playground, you know. Um, it's called an incubator as well. So it's kind yeah. of a you know, anything that our team or members would like to do that align with their purpose, we provide a structure or support system, a space that enable them to do that. Um, like if you look at our program portfolio at the moment, we also have a change program, you know, volunteer program to teach for free for kids, training program, and also a series of events. Um For now, it's, it's connected in somehow, but let's say, for example, in the future, like one of our team members decided to do something about healthcare, you know, like she's, we have a member who's very passionate about uh, the healthcare sector and she decided to test on innovative projects related to that issues. Um, I would be really happy to take the whole company to that direction because, you know, it's innovative, it's contribute to a cause is something we're both passionate about and we have a space and an entity that can enable us to to follow that direction um, so I would say that if we can grow our portfolio into many different meaningful innovative projects um, that would be very very cool for me <laughs> yeah do you do you think you you're on the right track to achieve that I would say with 2020 is uh, we don't have a track at the moment. <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't know if you have talked a lot with social entrepreneurs during COVID time. Is is especially with enterprises like us that is have you know international elements related a lot of uh, services and um, logistic required with the with the limitations of COVID and the um, lockdown and limitations of, you know, travel between um, different areas and different countries is almost shut all of our activity down completely, except if we want to do anything online. Um, so I, I would say for us this year would we'll be in survival mode and um, we try to keep our capacity and keep our people and keep our team afloat. But I wouldn't, because of the uncertainties that are going to come in the next year or even within the next two years, yeah, we will take it by, you know, day by day at the time. <laughs> yeah. I realize you've been working with, like, for example, through all the APYE events, programs, you always coordinate, you know, hundreds of people, of young delegates, and then you 
coordinate like a big community of alumni and you do this for pretty much everything that you do and always with the objective so I I, I, I I love your LinkedIn sentence so let me read it so her passion is to help people find their passions and activate the leadership potential of young people so yeah no, I wonder like what is the recurring you know things that you see patterns you see among young people who maybe they didn't find their passion they didn't activate their leadership potential yet do you see things across young people in different countries and what do you advise them I think I can't say a lot for other people, but I can say it for myself that I can, I can like through my journey, I can observe how, um, how different I am from, you know, being a person without purpose or without passion um, with the person I am today. Um, you know, if I would have uh, tech, you know, a career directions that work in a corporate or work in business, Um, maybe I would have been better off financially or, you know, career prospect without so much, you know, I, I don't have like as if I'm not a social entrepreneur, if I'm not leading my own company, maybe I wouldn't have to deal with the COVID trouble, right? Somebody else struggles. Um, um, but then, but then without purpose and passion, would I be as happy? Um, would I be as, you know, energetic and would I be, as um, would I have the friends that I have today? Um, I, I think that's a very, I think for especially young people when they starting to make big life decisions, um, it's always very confusing, right? You always have influence from the expectation of the society, from your family, from what you already studies and invest in, um, what your teacher or your school tell you or what you, even what yourself think would be, you know, a better path. Um, but at the end of the day, like if, if anyone who can just find that one thing that they feel like, oh, you know, like I, everyone work at least eight hours a day. Um, and that's, that's the majority of your day. Like you work more and you interact with your friends and family. Uh, you work for eight hours, you eat and rest for the rest 10 hours, just only leave you a few minutes for yourself and friends and family. Uh, so if you don't use that eight hours very well, um, the majority of your life you're going to be suffering. Um, so for me, it's having that one passion or purpose that make you that make you feel excited every day to spend that eight hours in a meaningful way that's completely, that makes a completely big difference to anyone's life, I would say. I think that's the perfect way to close the loop because, you know, we started by saying, I mean, The first sentence you say was, uh, you know, till 19, I forgot, but until 19, like you were only, you know, care about romance and, 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 and what, and shopping, but you, you started to find your passion, like, which started around uni days with ISX. So you saw the value in how it had changed you. So it's nice that you want to share this very big learning with other young people. And so uh, there's one thing I want I, I, okay uh, we're approaching the end but there's one thing Linka keeps telling me about you uh, I wanted to, to hear <laughs> in real life uh, about your life philosophy so you know Linka has this theory of people are either giver either takers and she keeps telling me 
I mean, Solinka is a big giver, you know, but she keeps telling me, you know, Millie. I mean, if me, I'm a giver, Millie is like 1,000% more giver. She never thinks about taking. So I'm um, yeah, wondering how do you formal, for, formal, uh, yeah, formalize this in your own words? And that? Do you agree? Is it something you thought about, you know, consciously? I, well, I mean, if you ask me, I would never say, I would never say that I myself is a giver. <laughs> But that, that is a very big compliment. <laughs> um, I think about my life philosophy, I always have this motto since I was very young, um, Uh, I had a I had a very difficult period in my in my high school years where I where I literally thought of killing myself and um, I, I reached the deepest level of you know you're at the bottom of the hole um, and the only way out is to climb climb up to climb out you know I literally um, sit, sat in front of a pile of sleeping pill and um, and that would have been the end of of me that day um, but. Um, Being so close to the bottom and then be able to climb out of it, uh, I also experienced where I felt like, um, you know, if I die now today, I wouldn't be, I, I wouldn't have any regret. I don't know if you ever felt that happiness or fulfillment that you feel like, you know, maybe it's just me, but you know, I, I experienced happiness and fulfillment that. I felt like even if a car hit me right now, I would die smiling, you know, I wouldn't have any regrets. Um, so my life motto is to live, to be so happy that you want to die. You know? <laughs> that you, because I want my last moment on earth is to be a happy moment. So I feel like if you constantly walk to experience this moment of extreme fulfillment, extreme happiness, you feel so you know, passionate with life or you feel like you've done something so great and you feel like you've done enough for the world and even if you would go away, you would you would not have any regrets. Like I would really love my actual death, like the last moment on earth to be a moment like that. And I actually experience feelings that make me feel this way. Um, and And I would say, you know, to anyone that, you know, live like that, like live so that you experience this, extreme bliss of uh, fulfillment and happiness that you don't have any regrets in this world anymore. <laughs> and you don't have to wait until you die to feel it, like try to feel it every other week or so. <laughs> When was the last time you felt that way? Like so happy and you're like, yeah, if I die today, no regrets. Mm. Well, right now, I would really love not to because I'm welcoming, <laughs> you know, my first baby in the world. <laughs> um, let me think of the last time. Give me a minute. <laughs> yeah, 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 no worries. It must have been a while ago because I can't really remember anything recently. You know, it's been a tough year on everybody. Yeah, like yesterday, someone asked me, yeah, how was your life before COVID? And I was like, yeah, so it seems like it's like 10 years ago. I don't remember. I know, right? <laughs> um, 
I think the thing with COVID is like it's limit so much what you can and cannot do. Um, it's actually took me a very long while to cope with the fact that you know I'm restricted in any way because I'm so used with the freedom that I had before. Um, being able to meet my friends and family whenever I want, and you know, able to create any new projects anytime I want, reach out to anybody. Um, and it's quite difficult to, you know, just just to be su- suddenly cut off from all of that for quite a long time. But let me try to think of anything during or before that. Well, I would say one recently, even though it's very close, um, it, it's not exactly the extreme, but it was very close that it made me very, very happy. Is that when we, you know, in, um, I think about six months ago, when we, when our company went through a very difficult time, um, I actually had to sit down with my team and considering the, possibility that we'll have to let everyone go um, or we won't be able to pay anyone's salary uh, uh, to that extent because of you know the effects of COVID um, but then it's it was very touching that everyone say oh you know like it's, it's not the most important thing even if we're not paid we will continue to work together and um, that that really moved me and um I felt like I have done something right with my team to, you know, to be able to be at the extreme difficult moments and um, they continue to show loyalty and support. Um, and that just that one small reaction is, um, it makes me push with everything I had to be able to continue to support them, the team, and doesn't let them um, be in the situation or be completely unemployed, you know. Um and actually before that call, I was so, I was preparing myself for the fact that, you know, we would have to uh, shut down or let everyone go. But it's just because of that small reaction that saying that they're willing to continue, um, that really pushed me to um, help, like push me to make the decisions that would, you know, not, not to be that extreme <laughs> um, and continue to support the team. Um so even though it wasn't a happy, like it wasn't a happy moment, it wasn't a happy decisions, uh, like situation, it wasn't a happy situation that we were in. Um, 
but it makes me extremely happy that I have people like that in my life and in my work as well. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's so nice. You know, when I ask you, are you on the right track? And you said, uh, no, I think you are because managing to build such a strong team, which is so passionate about your vision to work with the community, unlock the leadership potential. I think it's what, I mean, if, if, if the team survives this, then it will be able to achieve so many things, you know, in a normal situation. So I think you're on the right track. So congrats for that. Thank you. <laughs> I guess I guess no track is the right track. <laughs> yeah, there's just so many different tracks, right? Yeah. <laughs> I always end with these two questions because, you know, in this conversation, we speak a lot, a lot about the past, deep, like very far away past, a bit about the present. So I also have some questions about the future. Um, so, yeah, I'm always wondering uh, about people and about you like how do you want people to know you and to remember you for um, I actually had this vision of myself last year when I turned 25 um, because when I turned I had this goal for myself uh, ever since the first time I went abroad uh, since I was 19 uh, is to travel to 25 country by 25 years old and last time when I reached 25, I actually achieved that goal. Um, and I had this vision of, you know, what's next for me. Um, and like, after achieving that goal, am I, am I who I wanted myself to be? And I have this vision of, you know, just, just a feeling. I can't really describe it. Like, it's not imagining myself in a positions or in the conditions of, you know, life and power or family or anything. It's just a vision of me being very happy and confident. And a lot of people, when they look at that and they see, oh, that's her, that's, you know, that very confident, cool, bold lady who does things that she does. Um, and I think that energy, um, in a way, you know, is something that people can look up to. Is something positive and powerful, and is is some is is a form of um, example um, that you know you you've done something, you lead by actions, and you express this attitude of um, confidence and go for it. Um, so I was I'm not sure if I'm there yet, but I would really love if you know one day I see myself that way, or people would see myself that way. And uh, no, fifty countries before fifty. Oh no, I, I actually think that, you know, traveling so much is not so sustainable. So <laughs> I'm actually very happy that I have some downtime and, you know, I, I love my experience of being adventurous and exploring. Um, but I, I, I think, you know, when you reach a certain stage, you don't have that urge and you don't have that hmm. um, pressure to live so fast anymore. Would you say that you are still as rebellious than when you were younger? I would say I'm even more rebellious. Oh, okay. oh. <laughs> um, well, I mean, that's, you know, I, I, I think if rebellious in a way that allow you to be who you are and be happy with your life is not a bad thing. If you're rebellious in a way that is destructive or, you know, damaging 
people's lives. Uh, I don't think it's a good way to go. But for me, um, the things that I have to rebel the most was, you know, mostly uh, the social pressure norms towards mm-hmm. a, an Asian girl, to be specific. Um, so that's something that I always try to break out of. Um, um, and also a lot of, uh, even within families, there's a lot of generation gaps and limitations that we don't really understand each other. There's um, expectations and decisions that are somehow, you know, I, I would like to make for myself and not to be influenced by any others. Um, I would, I would, you know, be very strong about it. Um, but, you know, I don't rebel against the system or anything like that. <laughs> And um, how would you describe yourself in three hashtags? Three hashtags? Um, I think there's three words that my friend gave me that I put in my Facebook profile. So my friend described me as, so this is my roommate in KL who we got very close. Um, and she's like a bigger sister for me. And she gave the perfect description that even I don't have anything to object. So she said I'm very wacky adventurous and passionate for life wacky <laughs> what does that mean <laughs> never heard this <laughs> exactly that's exactly what it means it means like you know quirky i guess in in, in english um oh okay like, yeah wacky like you know cool and weird i guess <laughs> I, I I translated it. Okay, it's like uh, crazy, but it's a good crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can say that. <laughs> okay, cool, cool, cool. How can people support uh, Innovation Incubator, and or where can people reach out to you if they want to reach out to you? Uh, yes. So if it's uh, me, is you can reach me on my Facebook, Millie Nguyen. <laughs> it's the most popular Vietnamese <laughs> name. Um, or just find innovationincubator.asia in Facebook or Instagram. And that's where you can reach me or my team anytime. Cool. Thank you so much, Millie, for this hour and 30 minute conversation. I really enjoyed Thank it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the story of Millie. Feel free to reach out to her if you enjoy this episode. And of course, please do share this episode with your friends. That's the best way to support Lifeline Podcast. See you next time.